John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 810.LK2129, certificate number 46162, Mother Trees. Would you say that you and I have a symbiotic relationship? Hmm. Is there symbiosis? This would mean that you and I each rely upon the other, but benefit by the relationship overall. Right. Well, that would be a mutualistic symbiosis. There can also be a parasitic symbiosis. Oh, symbiosis can be the good kind or the bad kind. I think, yeah. So parasitic's on the table? I think. Yes, then we definitely have symbiosis. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> We're like uh, one of those situations where like a giant jungle cat has a little bird on its back picking snails off of it. Yes, and I appreciate when you do that for me. Yeah. Just getting those snails <laughs> they're, they're off all, of here. They're all stuck on there. Yeah. What are they doing? You're, you're, Cat snails. You're the little uh, you're the little cleaner fish brushing the algae off my teeth <laughs> because it's delicious to you. No, I'm stuck on your side, just sucking your sucking your blood. I'm sure you think of yourself as the as whatever the majestic California condor is. I truly am a majestic, not a condor, blarf. Because they're all buzzardy. Yeah, no, I'm the I'm the majestic uh, alpine moose, the forest moose, sailing above the hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the flying moose, and I'm the little bird in your antlers that that enjoys getting the view from up there. Yes, uh, a nice place to sit and rest. John, tell me about. And pick the mites out of your feathers. Tell me about Ingvi Malmstein. <laughs> I need your elevated viewpoint. Yeah, well, I, I feel like um, <clears throat> symbiosis is a thing. When, when did you first learn uh, encounter the concept of mutual interdependency? Do you feel like it happened in science class? I feel like by, maybe by watching my toxic family members. Mm. Uh, no, I'm kidding, <laughs> of course. To I did- all the Jennings who listen... You are beloved. Enjoy these codependency <laughs> jokes. My dad did just text me the other night, and he's like, "Hey, speaking of the Batavia, you know, I uh, I actually saw the replica in the early '90s when they were building it in the Netherlands." Oh, he was listening to the show, and I was like, first of all, you're listening to the show. Second of all, cool, but wow. also, um, hi, Ken Jennings, senior. They could be listening right now. Um, the walls have ears. No, I would say it was probably, there was, uh, I believe there's like, it's a bio class yeah, um, right. thing where you learn, here are the different kinds of relationships, here are the examples. This one's 
detrimental to one, but helpful to the other. This one's neutral to one, helpful to the other. But I think around the same time, there was also a Star Trek The Next Generation episode that covered different kinds of symbiosis. Okay. So it's really not clear which would have stuck in my mind more. Um, I think I learned it in science class before Star Trek The Next Generation was even a twinkle in Gene Roddenberry's eye. You're so old. I know, I really am. You you have pre-Will Wheaton knowledge I really of do. this stuff. This is an, so everything in this episode will be pre-Wheaton era. No, well, mm, no. No, not at all. I mean, Good. I, I want I some post-Wheaton science here. I have pre-Will Wheaton science. I have a lot of post-Will Wheaton, and I also have concurrent Will Wheaton Like knowledge. stuff that he told you? Like he just uh, walked, up to, walked up to you once and was like, uh, the great red spot on Jupiter is larger than the diameter of the Earth, and just walked away? Oh, if I, I could write a book about all the things <laughs> that Will Wheaton has taught me in my short life. Uh, you could. You could ghostwrite it for him, and he could make a ton of money. Yeah. I'll just put his name on the cover and uh, and his picture on the cover, and I'll sell it online. Everything I needed to know, I learned from Wesley Crusher. I spend a lot of time, as you know, in my forest and in my garden. Yes. You have a ravine. I'm, I'm often gardening and also foresting. Tell me, oh, you're planting new trees. Yeah, I'm putting... Getting rid of the uh, invasive ones. I'm putting new trees. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taking away the invasives, and I'm trying to duplicate a, a, a native forest, a rhizosphere. No. I'm trying to develop a rhizosphere as part of, um, of restoring a forest habitat. Now, as a famously smart person, of course, I know what a rhizosphere is, but can you just refresh my memory as if for the other people mm-hmm. listening who might not know? Just explain it to you like a five-year-old? Pre- pretend I, you know, obviously I know, but pretend I don't and uh, hook but, us all up. You know, the rhizosphere is the uh, the subsurface environment uh, around a tree. It, 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 it includes all of its root structure, all of the kind of... Um, you know all the bugs and the and the bacteria and everything that is that's under the down in the in the world of of roots and vegetables. I guess that's what a rhizome is, kind of like a root stem of a plant. So that must yeah. be the root for for the root for roots for the roots. It's the roots of, of uh, so so. You know, in my ravine, I've got all these mature trees, but I'm, but a lot of the understory was overwhelmed by introduced ivy. Which often happens in the Northwest. It does. You're going to have blackberries and you're going to have that scotch broom stuff. You're going to have all this tangling, awful ivy. One of the things about the uh, Pacific Northwest is that a lot of stuff will grow here. It does get cold one week a year. And that cold often will cause some die-off of, of tropical plants. But a lot of stuff that well, will— Hardy stragglers will remain. Boy, they really do take off. So I've, you know, I've gone out into the native forests of Washington and just tried to get an understanding of, like, what do they look like? Uh, but, of course, a lot of our, our best native forests were logged many right. decades ago and continue to be logged. No longer OG— and there's there are very few forests here that weren't logged at one point, um, but including I think my ravine, yeah, a hundred and twenty years ago. Who was out logging your ravine? Well, it was 
it was between yeah. hither and thither, and it was like, well, there are some trees here. It's just a, it's a little steep there, and a lot of times the loggers right. leave leave some trees that they can't get to. Lazy loggers, am I right? If you really hate yeah. the earth, let's clear cut that bitch, like including the steep parts. Yes, am I right, Paul Bunyan? Get it together. So there are some trees in my on my property that are ninety years old, um, but what's missing is the kind of growing understory. Uh, and do you, do, so, you want a, do you wish you had a nurse log? Well, the, I do have nurse logs. <gasps> you have nurse logs. I do. I have nurse logs. That's a real part of, of Northwest primary education and uh, explanatory placards on trails. Yeah. There's a lot of different, you know, there's the nurse log and then there's the, there's the sexy uh, nurse log sexy, <laughs> for Halloween. The, that's right. There's the, uh, there's the, Old nurse ratchet log, <laughs> which is less fun. But uh, recently, there's been a lot of science around this the study of the kind of interdependence of natural systems, right? We long ago started to understand that if you put DDT on your crops, it's going to get into the condor eggs, and the condor eggs are going to not hatch condors. How old, how long, uh, how old do you think this knowledge goes? That life is a vast web. That's not like, you know, it's common sense to us today. We certainly didn't act as if it were the case. Well, what's what's interesting is that, that Darwin had a lot of that. uh, He, he wrote quite a bit about the kind of interconnectedness. Complexity of the connections. Because it, because that's sort of uh, like a, like maybe one of the the most profound conclusions of his work is like, well, you know, it's not just interesting because of these individual species. It's interesting because this reflects a whole bio, biosphere. And it's in the state where, you know, in the same sense that invisible natural forces are producing selection, it's also kind of producing, in effect, a, 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 an equilibrium where all these different competing forces produce the natural world we see. And that was less popular as... I think is evident by what we associate Darwin with, but people were doing this, um, this kind of research in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, there was an understanding that, that, um, trees were interdependent, you know, in the 19th century, they weren't able to trace uh, super rare carbon isotopes as they, made their way through interconnected networks of, of plant life. So they could, you know, they could only investigate what they could see, but there was a lot of theorizing about, um, about some of the stuff that now the science demonstrates to a much greater extent than, than was imagined. And on the macro level, I'm sure you could see the, the, you know, the, what, what the eels sucking off the, I was about to say the eel sucking off the other fish. You could definitely mm. see that. <laughs> I mean, whatever they do. go on the internet at rule 34, <laughs> you know, there's, there's stuff like that that is happening on a visible yeah. level. You know, they could, a naturalist could see the bird that uses the other bird's nest to get ahead with their own young or, you know, not all of this. Do you have to follow a chain of carbon hydrocarbon molecules? Yeah. And, and I think even, um, even a more complex understanding of plant life and its interdependence, um, on uh, on other plants, what, you, you know, could, was, you could see mushrooms growing on trees. Exactly, right? 
it was all it was all kind of theorized back in the 1870s a uh, a polish scientist by the name of Franciszek Kamiński ha- was already kind of laying out the groundwork for some of this science uh, followed up and his research was followed up by Albert Frank who actually coined a term we're going to use a lot on this episode which is mycorrhiza 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 which is um an interdependence of trees and crops, really the vast majority of plant life. Any plant. Uh, an interdependence with fungi that actually bond with the with the tree or with the plant life underground and become a part of a of the network, but, but both supporting the individual tree and also as a Almost a neuron, neuronical, neuronal, Neur- yeah, neuronal, neuronal network that connects trees to one another, and then ultimately, like all the trees. Wait, so how early was this? I mean, I'm kind of shaky on the science myself. So apparently, there's a a web of fungus that connects a bunch of other flora together, um, such that they can know about each other and act in concert. Is this happening at a microscopic level, or are these like mushroomy things you can see, or like how? How was this? This was known in the nineteenth century. Well, the the presence of fungus as a part of the under underground uh, root structure of trees was observed, and it was speculated that that the fungus played it was not just parasitic, yeah, but played a, a mutualistic role in the in the health and life of the tree but it wasn't until fairly recently that 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 a more complete understanding of how all of these trees and and plants were all interconnected with one another we talk a lot about the sentient aspen of the future who are um who are listeners and 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 in many cases patreon yeah hopefully (laughs) patreon supporters um and the aspen that we think of as, uh, and that we've discovered, is the largest single organism on Earth. Right. Sometimes whole groves of aspen are just basically one tree. They're all, yeah, they're all one, one tree, and and you know, and in a way, you know, a very ancient organism as well. Uh, the largest one is called pando. Pando. The, tr- the trembling giant, which is this, you know, this. I like um, how he's a Japanese monster. Pando. No, Pando is coming. And and Godzilla will save us from Pando. It's in Utah. You want to think that it's going to be in Colorado because they coined the, you know, they they trademarked Aspen, but no, it's actually over the mountains. Yeah, I've seen Utah. a bunch of Aspens in the in the Utah canyons. But that is a different kind of thing. That actually is a single organism and all the trees that you see sticking out of the ground are just clones they're all you're basically seeing different stems yeah they're all it's like uh, a stock of broccoli or like something cl- clonal male uh, sprouts whoa right so super gay yes that's right it is the Asp- pando is the quaking queer icon queer <laughs> quaking quixotic icon thank you aspens representation matters this uh this my, mycorrhizal symbiosis is uh, is a process or is a interrelation 
between individual trees. Of different species? Of different species. Whoa. And also of the same species. So a lot of the research and we're, and the star of today's show is, uh, is a, a Pacific Northwest scientist, a Canadian, but we include the, the yes. west coast of Canada in our Pacific Northwest biome. We enjoy Cascadia. Just That's right. Not all its Blue Jays fans, but many of its scientists. Yes, and we speak mostly the same language. A British Columbia scientist of forestry by the name of Suzanne Samard, who uh, teaches at the University of British Columbia, but who got her forest science PhD at Oregon State. So she obviously speaks American too. Honorary beaver. Who grew up as a, like in, in a forestry family, in a family of lumberjacks, um, but who over time, and because she lived in the, in the forests of British Columbia, uh, developed a curiosity and then over time an expertise in the way forests are structured socially. I oh, guess. oh, this is crazy. I just looked her up and I realized I saw her speak last year. I was at an event with her where she was where she was sharing her her findings about the holistic forest. Really? It was yeah. it Campfire with Jeff Bezos? I can't really remember or say. <laughs> it was some kind of weekend retreat that might have speakers. She is uh, she's very uh front and center right now. She's given several TED Talks. She um she actually has been fictionalized in uh, 2018's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Overstory, she became a... Uh, There's a Canadian Simard-like scientist? Yeah, a fictional character by the name of Patricia Wellerford. And I didn't read The Overstory, and it's... Um, I it, have not. It's a redwood theme book. Oh, I've seen, I've seen this book. It's by Richard Powers. Yes, I've seen this. And, uh, you know, every once in a while you you get sucked into a... Uh, like a season of episodic television where you're like, how did this get made? It's about a tree scientist. And I, I don't know how, I mean, I guess that's the kind of novel that wins the Pulitzer these days. I like novels like that where you can tell there's like some intensely researched angle where the the author really takes you into a world, in this case, forest science, that you don't know anything about and then kind of imagines their personal lives. Yeah, but it but there doesn't seem to be like a murder at the center of it or a heist. And if let there's me, not a murder or a heist, let me explain to you literary fiction. What wow. if it's what if it's a complicated mother daughter relationship? Or mm, but in this case, it's a mother daughter relationship between trees. <laughs> That's even better. Uh, what what uh, uh, Doctor Samard discovered was that, and we're we're going to be talking about some of the some of the trees here in the Pacific Northwest, but this is true of plant life around the world. In fact, it seems like 95% of all plants are mycorrhizal. And there are, it's estimated, over 20,000 different varieties of fungus that provide this service the to, service to I feel like we should be saluting the heroic fungus. <laughs> we, you know, thank you, fungus, for your service. Is it the kind of thing where the trees couldn't survive in their current form without them, or does it just uh, I don't know help them thrive or take advantage or well like the, would the whole thing fall apart without the myco part? 
it is essential to a healthy forest. Now you could plant a fir tree in a, uh, in some sanitized soil that is completely without, uh, the fungal mycelium that performs this role and Mm -hmm. the fir tree would grow. But, and, and you see in forests that have been clear cut. That's what I was wondering. When, when stuff gets replanted in rows in these managed forests. I think in those cases, the mycelium is still under, under there kind of waiting for new trees. Oh, that's great. So so that can come back and rebuild the understory and. But, but you can't, I mean, you can grow a fir tree in a, in a pot. Yes. Um, but he'll be sad. He'll be like, he'll be where's sad. my fungi? I but, once heard the echoes of the other trees. Now I hear nothing. They, they do, they do a lot of different things. It's kind of amazing. The, the, um, the degree of symbiosis. And once this effect was understood, the, um, well, it's not archaeology. What what would be the study of ancient plants? Mm, um, some sometimes they just say like paleobiology or yeah, pa- paleobotany. Probably I like that paleobotany has uh, determined that really the symbiosis between fungi and plant life goes all the way back to the first plants coming out of you know the first plants that walked up out of the ocean and and grew legs and became ants. The relationship started then and was actually built up from the ground floor. Yeah. It wasn't like a later, you know, a billion years later, the fungi arrived. No, it was, it's kind of intrinsic to how, uh, well, how, how, uh, how plants thrive. In addition to electrolytes is what plants crave. And then mycelium is what helps them thrive. I feel like as recently as when I was in high school, we understood fungi to be plants. They were part of the plant kingdom. And I think now it's not usually taxonomized like that. Now there's plantae, which is, you know, flowering plants and gymnosperms and all the rest. And then there's fungi, which are doing their own thing. And we just, we think of them as plants because you put them on salad, but it turns out that's not how, that's not how taxonomy works. Well, and then there's moss, which uh, which is a third category that no one's entirely sure. Moss may or may not be a... What's going on with moss? Moss may or may not be a plant? Moss is a is some kind of plant, but oh, it it's not... Plant. I don't... I think... It's, it's also a vibe, so it's hard to say. I think moss Linnaeus is... Linnaeus should have just used vibes. When we say 95% of all plants are mycorrhizal, I think maybe moss and fungus uh, are among us. They are, but they. I don't. I'm Especially not sure in the northwest. I'm not sure what their relationship is because you know moss doesn't doesn't grow in the soil. If you had fungus and then moss on top of it, that feels like you it's know, true. You're starting. It's starting to be. You a, think moss is doing its own thing? It's not. It's not part of the. It's like got its own little corporate intranet, yeah. whereas the the mycorrhizal system is running its own global. Yeah, DARPA one of these net. kids is doing its own thing. That's one right. of these kids, not the same. Um, I know that this is one of those episodes, whenever I do a science episode, it seems like the actual scientists who listen to the show really come out of the woodwork. Just to appreciate you and salute you. <laughs> and I know that your, popu- are, your popularization work. I know there are a lot of biologists and a lot of, uh, a lot of plant scientists who are listening to the show who are really, really dancing around like they have to go to the bathroom wherever they are. They're bouncing around in the seat of their of their very efficient eco car 
because they want to say, they want to help me so much. They want to say so many things. Well, the impression I got listening to Samart is that the conclusions were just so um, astounding and beyond what I would have thought of as mainstream science that I wondered if I was actually hearing some kind of new age woo-woo thing or if this was actually going to prove to be a breakthrough in understanding how forests work. And I assume it's the second, but the conclusions are just baffling and paradigm-breaking. One of the things about woo as a as a subculture in America is let's, that— Let's dissect woo. —is that woo often seizes upon actual science and then just sort of— I, I'm not going to say misapplies, but but Im- improves it. <laughs> takes actual science and then makes adds it, makes it, it better. Yeah, adds, adds Smurfs. Adds it to a cosmology. Yeah. And a lot of times you'll hear something like this, like the trees talk to each other, and there will be a a like a woo interpretation. They're sad that we're cutting them down. Exactly. Trees are intelligent. Trees are uh, conscious. Well, what can we then? What can we say? What is the information that's being passed? Well, in a way, trees are intelligent and conscious. Um, oh, uh, Suzanne, the woo's coming from inside the house. Uh, Suzanne Samard actually uses the word intelligent, although, like a lot of scientists, when she, people, could prob- she could probably do a crossword puzzle faster than a sycamore. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, and, but, but I think when you when the interviewer goes intelligent and puts the mic yeah. back in her face, right. she's like, "Well, I say intelligent. I don't mean that they are." Uh, they're not trying to communicate with us, but they are communicating with each other. A funny thing about celebrity culture is that anybody answering a question is made to look in the headline as if they had made an announcement. Right. It's like, Daniel Radcliffe says, you know, don't put mustard on it. You know, well, why would he Why would he call a press conference? No, he didn't. Why does some, he care? Some bonehead reporter asked the poor guy a question. And he was like, sure. And then it's like... Well, okay. So, so the headline of uh, of her research was it, it specifically, or or uh, um, you know, kind of interestingly, uh, a symbiotic relationship between fir trees and birch trees, who you would think would be enemies, <laughs> enemies, and also competitors, uh, because but it turns out they're super into each other and are going to produce little firch. Firch tree offsprings. Firch trees. No, they are super into each other. And and y- you, um, when you look at a uh, at a forest as it's kind of uh, the the understory of a forest as it is, um, making its way in the world today, it takes everything they've got. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I'm doing all of these pop culture things. I should stop. It's not your brand, but. You would think that birch trees and and fir trees were uh, competing for limited resources. Right. But really, birch trees and fir trees need different things at different times of the year. Um, trees use photosynthesis to create sugars, mm-hmm. uh, and they sequester carbon, but... Trees need carbon and sugar at different times. So birch trees... Like different times of the year? Yeah. Birch oh. trees during the summer are in full uh, leaf. Just like me. And they that's right. Although I'm more of an autumn tree. Is, is that true? I'm more of a fir and the, you're more the of a birch. The fir trees are like hot Christian girl autumn? Mm-hmm. 
um, the 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 furs are producing a lot of sugar and carbon during the winter when birch trees are without the ability to make food for themselves. And the furs, it turns out, are actually sharing that material, sharing that nutrition with the birches as they are in, you know, root growing hibernation, right? But trees grow their roots, plants grow their roots in the, in the winter and then, you know, produce leaves and, and produce growth above ground during the summer. And I'm with you so far. The fir trees are feeding the birch because in the summer, the birch return the favor. And this is actually, so actual nutrients are in effect being passed back and forth right. subterraneanly. Right. Nutrients and, and also uh, other information besides. Like birch trees are actually working to shade the seedlings of fir trees in the summer and the firs the firs actually know the difference underground between firs that are seedlings of themselves and their family and other firs that are less related to them. Well, there's an incest taboo for fir trees. There's like a fir they're fir families. And the fungus is both acting as a as a media of communication like the information is traveling. The tree gets a chemical and is like, I know what to do with this chemical. It's telling me that there's a fur seedling nearby that needs shade or like it's that kind of a thing. Yes. The, wow. the trees are sending out, um, s- sending out stuff and it's, and it is, and it is directed. It's not just, it's not just splooged into the earth to be gathered by whomever. Well, that's a relief. It's making its rounds. And the fungus is acting in several different ways. Um, there is fungus that is what they call extracellular fungus or, um, or ectomycorrhizic fungus, where any one tree might have as many as 15 different fungi Inter, you know, like uh, like actually species of fungi, species of fungi doing different kinds of systems interconnected with its roots, and providing a kind of um, well, the fungi is much thinner and finer than the tree roots can be. Right, the right. The, the smallest roots send out little hairs, but the fungus can act as a amplifier of that stuff to gather water, to gather phosphorus, to, to take the nutrient from the soil and actually deposit it onto the roots in a way that the roots couldn't do. And it enables trees to live in soil where the nutrients are, are more locked up like clay soil. It's really hard to get the, yeah. it, the, just, chemically break the nutrients down in a way a tree could use it but the but the fungus is the intermediary is there some evolutionary advantage for the fungus and having a nice healthy tree there like it, it it gets other it can it can take material from the tree 
Yeah, well, the the fungus as the tree brings, decomposes, or the the fungus brings the the water and the and the iron and the you know the the chemicals that the tree needs to grow, and the tree returns the favor in the form of of sugar and carbon. So it helps the fungus then become the fungus eats that. Yeah, the fungus. Well, and the fungus also. So then is also biologically breaking down the leaf litter and yeah and which then it converts into chemicals um there there's evidence that uh do you know what a springtail is i don't a springtail is like a little tiny bug like a little lobster that lives under the forest. Is that how you think of <laughs> bugs? A little lobster that lives a, under the forest. It's a little lobster. And I think the springtail is one of the. That's oh, like a hexapod. Yeah. yeah it's I, one I of the mean. most prevalent like animals on the earth. It's, um, you know. In a, and they're not insects, interestingly, even yeah, though they have. Yeah, right. They're. Uh, they're they have six legs, but they're their own little evolutionary line. They've got a lot of. Se- they've got like six segments. They're They're very. Um, they're unusual little creatures mm. and they are, if you take a square meter of dirt, it's got a hundred thousand of these little hexapods in it that are all, you know, working away. Doing their thing invisibly. Chugging, but, chugging, chugging. But importantly. They're very small. And there's evidence that, um, that this mycelium will actually extrude chemicals that attract springtails and then kill them. Whoa, slave labor? And the, then the the killed, the dead springtails bring nitrogen to the tree roots. And some trees are getting upward of a quarter of their nitrogen from dead springtails that are being murdered by their <laughs> symbiotic mycelium. Many Bothans died to bring us this information. <laughs> now, there's another kind of... of uh, uh, or or uh, uh, fungus that works in a different way, the endomycorrhiza, mm-hmm. which actually sends its little tendrils into the membrane of the cells of the of the tree root of cells? the roots of the tree, huh. and become kind of and this is even this is the more prevalent of the two, um, th- becomes essentially part of the tree. This is basically when they're having sex. This when is the how, tree and the fungus are having sex. So this is how trees, and this is also how trees have sex with each other. Um, so, which brings us to the mother tree, which is a, a concept that Dr. Samard has may, maybe discovered, may, certainly promoted. Pioneered. Which is the idea that Underground, you can see the connections of bet- between all these different trees, both mm-hmm. of the same species and of different species. But they're in any, you know, in any area of land, there's going to be one tree that has the greatest number of connections. And just, just by definition, or is it important that there's kind of essentially one in the same way that there's a queen bee, that there's a queen tree? It is a queen tree. Ooh. And the queen tree is, um, is kind of making is is part of a system of resource allocation and distribution. It has responsibilities that the other trees don't. Well, or it is 
it is at the center of a hub that, for instance, if a tree is suddenly attacked by aphids, that tree will send a signal that it is under siege, and the mother tree will direct the mother tree will direct some volatile organic compounds or VOCs or Vox. Love to get some VOCs from my mother tree. That both help that tree uh, combat aphids, mm-hmm. and also that uh, those compounds will go out to neighboring trees in order to help them protect against. Well, and what what some of them do is actually attract predators that will eat the will eat the aphids. So sometimes it's stuff that aphids don't like to smell. Sometimes it's stuff that the ladybug or bird that eats the aphids will love to smell. Right. That tree is giving perfume to its to its bestie. Yes. And that's a gift. It does sound at at a at this at this point um almost indistinguishable from woo. And for futurelings that well, I'm assuming that all futurelings are living in a world that is entirely woo. Right, because woo, woo is one. woo is the only true way of seeing the earth. It's all connected to yoga and vegetarianism and anti-vax QAnoning, mm-hmm. but also yoga and self-care. And in the case of the people I know, to- a lot of spa visits. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta drink those green shakes, or you're gonna have toxins. And books that you can the get in, get rid in, of the toxins, like airport bookstores. A lot of stuff like that. And I'm assuming it is the go- the governing religion and also form of government of futurelings. But for people in the intermediary times, Wu is, what would you call it? A, a, a sort of a comparative religion hodgepodge of like take one from column A, one from column B. But, but. Yeah. And it's not internally consistent between its followers even. Yeah. But with a kind of, with an idea that there's a holistic truth that if you can unlock it, you see the the interconnectedness of all things. And I think in some ways, like the human-centric uh, manifestation that people can do as spiritual animals to create both a sort of prosperity gospel. Yeah, Wu is reassuring. Wu is never like, yeah. you're just uh, you're one of billions of lonely organisms on a speck of dust hurtling through the endless night. Wu right. often tells Which is you. How I feel. Wu often tells you, science actually says you're special yeah. if, if you look at the right science the right way. Yeah, it's the um, it's the spooky action at a distance where a lot of us there are like, is. "Whoa! How do you get the? How did these atoms align with each other? How spooky!" And the Wu take is like, "No, it's not spooky. It's it's uh, indicative of." Well, it seems like Doctor Samart is suggesting actual chemical level interactions. Absolutely. That, that explain Wu. She's going to give us the equations of Wu. Well, but that this is the this is the trick with Wu because Wu can co-opt science really easily. So, yes, the more explaining of Wu you do, the more it empowers Wu. But then it ceases to become Wu because now it's an equation. Well, it's so in this case there are two schools of thought, right? One is the kind of um no compromise in defense of mother earth school of thought which is these are sentient creatures, this is a biosphere, and we cannot, you know, if you go to a forest in Germany, those forests are completely managed 
they're monoculture forests. The uh, the understory is cleared so that they can get in there with their little tractors. The trees are planted in rows. They're all one species and they're all one age. And that is not how forests actually work. Um, but there is, there's also a lot of interest in this from the logging community because the evidence shows that if you leave the mother tree, you can cut down all the trees around her and she'll be bummed, but she the and her will heal faster. Yeah. She and her network of mycelium and roots and just her colonization of the, of the ground, her uh, rhizosphere mm-hmm. makes it, much easier to regrow the forest and um and it's cutting down the mother tree that breaks the that breaks the network breaks the cycle so you can go you know you can go a lot of different directions with this information um it's an interesting philosophical question i feel like this has become up in omnibus before maybe when we talked about plantasia and the 70s fad for plant sentience it's just at what point the system that becomes so complicated that it looks neuronal, that it seems to have analogs to the way intelligence works. At what point do you actually just throw up your hands and say, well, it might, they might as well be sentient. Like the complexity is such that they might actually, these might not be analogous to drives and thoughts and will, but what if it actually is drives and thoughts and will Yeah, and coming you, from different parts of the forest? You can extrapolate the other direction, which is, are we, right. is the earth a biosphere and we are performing some role in it that maybe we got out of control? We are the blackberries. That's not woo. Um, but it also, there are lots of cases you could make that we are, that that our system of roads and internet is a, just a neural network that is now turning the planet into a giant death star, which we will use to kill other planets. And maybe that's the whole purpose of the universe. And it gives me a sense of, of well-being to know that I have such a, a purpose. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really matter how fulfilled I feel on a daily basis. It doesn't matter if I'm a data packet in this great internet that's being created. Exactly. Just by, just by going to the store or doing a bank transfer, I'm helping. Once the hollow moon crashes into the earth and we realize that all we have to do is put ramjets on one side of the earth, we, put, we cover the Sahara with with jets so and, that we can and then we start blast the other way yeah then we start g- moving the earth around and we don't have to put spaceships out there we can just drive the earth to mars if the jets are on africa i just want to look at an antipodal map of earth and see what part of earth is the cockpit of spaceship earth at this point directly opposite the sahara is well it's ba- siberia right it's basically no it's um denmark no it's the middle of the indian ocean it's like halfway between Madagascar and Australia. Oh, so you'd have to, I see. You'd have to build an island due south of India that becomes the cockpit of Earth. No, wait, that can't be right. Maybe that's where uh, that's where that oh, no, yeah, that, that, that Malaysian Airlines airplane went down right there. It's the, sorry, it's the Pacific. I'm wrong. It's like Polynesia. It's Polynesia. That makes more sense. That's a that's a nicer place to have a have a cockpit Earth. Yeah, you just put your cockpit just northeast of New Zealand, and you run the whole place from there. So if we're talking about mother trees, is there, is there a way for me to look at a forest and know what the mother tree is? It's not always going to be the oldest tree or the fanciest tree. No, it's not always the oldest tree. And I think that if you were looking at this from a forest products 
sense, there would need to be some, I think, and they, and this may be, you know, the forestry isn't always the most progressive industry. Although if you go up to Mount St. Helens, Weyerhaeuser has built a museum there that competes with the Mount St. Helens Museum. It's nicer and better funded, which You've is been a bummer. There. I've you... been I've been to both, I believe. Yeah, I have been to both too. And the Weyerhaeuser one is like, wow, it's nice in here. This doesn't have this doesn't have like 1980s government bathrooms. It's not made of blocks of government cheese, but it also has a lot of exhibits about how important it is to um to cut down all the trees every 80 years. And how great Weyerhaeuser is at it and what a great service they're doing for the world. But I think that if they extend that mentality to their process, they will develop the science to, you know, to go into these uh, rhizomes or rhizospheres and maybe be able to determine. Because the thing about these, you know, if you take 45 trees that are all connected to one mother tree, mm-hmm. they're not living in isolation from the other you know the the trees that are their neighbors um the the i think the limits of the study are how far the this radioactive iodine can can go out and indicate a a, a network but i imagine all these networks like neurons are interconnected with one another and so mother trees are at a distance communicating with other mother trees or or overlapping with them and the ability, I think, I think what you would end up doing is saying we just leave the biggest trees, uh, or we leave one big tree every quarter of an acre. Um, that is against the the clear cut model for sure. But um, but it, and and then I what, mean the clear cut model is just efficient. It's not yeah, it's right. not um, environmentally uh, advantageous in any way. I mean, I'm sure if, if you cared about the environment, you would carefully thin out trees, but yeah. leave enough of a of a canopy for all the species and blah, blah, blah. And nobody does that. But what, yeah, what you see is also that they clear the birches out, that they think that what the birch trees are doing is uh, getting in the way of growing more firs, when in fact the birch are part of a, uh, part of the, the nurturing process for young firs. Hmm. So the mother tree actually literally is a mother. It's um, it's a big mama. That's right. It's the mama bear. It's raising all the little baby, the baby trees. What's interesting is that Dr. Samard is also uh, sort of promulgating a philosophy of science within universities. I remember years ago, I went to Stanford as part of an ultimate tournament and I was talking to some student at Stanford who told me this anecdote, and I have no idea whether this is true. This just sounds like the kind of baloney that Stanford students uh, say on airplanes in order to sound interesting. This was before that Stanford became a tech universe, back when it was really known for its ultimate Frisbee team. It was teams. just Frisbee, nothing yeah. else. You could, you could major in Frisbee scholarship. But they told me this story about how the different science disciplines all had their own lunchrooms. Like there was the biology department lunchroom, and then over here there was the engineering lunchroom, and they were doing some improvement on the campus, and they had to close a couple of lunchrooms, and the engineers had to have lunch in the biology lunchroom, and in the course of oh, whatever, whatever I know, 
the the course of well, there was only grilled cheese sandwiches in the engineering lunchroom because they had never developed a sense of taste. Yeah, usually this is when you're like, wait, these guys have been getting the big chocolate chip cookies all this yeah. time. The biologists were eating these incredible, you know, uh, moss sandwiches, quinoa. But just the just sitting at the same table at lunch produced all of this like collaborative yeah. energy cross-pollination of ideas yeah where somebody was like well what are you working on well i'm working on this that and the other and all of a sudden they were like that's what i'm working on and so uh suzanne samard is trying to promote that as a uh as a kind of a philosophy of the communication of the sciences um and she calls it the terra web uh, not terra but terra web wait with with people or plants with people. Okay. She wants a mother tree like forest vibe. She wants a, in the sciences. a forest vibe in the sciences. What are the little funguses that crawl between the engineers and the and the uh big pharma guys or whatever? Um, um comparative emails? literature majors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the humanities majors. <laughs> no, you know what? There's no other use for communications majors. Maybe <gasps> that's what they're good for. Well, they, I mean, they did such a good job playing on the, the basketball team or the lacrosse team, uh-huh. but w- what do we do with the rest of their life cycle? Let them be the voice between the different sciences. Bring me some volatile compounds, communications major. I have aphids. And that concludes Mother Trees, entry 810.LK2129, certificate number 46162, in the omnibus. Uh, the data packets that John and I exchanged in our era did not tend to go through fungal soil. They were often on social media platforms, unfortunately, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project. Um, our analog uh, sentient aspens of your uh, hydrocarbons were emails that we would receive at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You could send us physical items. This would be like our leaf litter to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington. Um, I'm going to open something right now from from Laurelis in Albany. Am I saying that right? Laurelis? 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 We may never know because it, unless it comes with a punctuation guide. When I open it... Um, oh, I guess I shouldn't... Um, talk about this this is a Uh this is a birthday card we need to sign by the time this airs i think the recipient will have already received this birthday card that i said we would sign for an omnibus listener so apparently i should not advertise this service on this show but you and i are going to very kindly sign this card but here's the thing yes did they send a self-addressed stamped envelope they did but they also said hey don't worry if you can't get it to me before his birthday on november 2nd Guess what day? Oh. Guess what day we are recording this oh. show? <laughs> so wait a minute. We should say happy birthday right now because this won't air for for uh, if we send that out today or tomorrow. That's true. But by the time our uh, our recipient hears it, hopefully he would have received this already and already had a birthday. So yes. happy birthday, recipient! Who is it? Steve, there we go. I was like, it's got to be on the letter somewhere. Steve, happy birthday, Steve. Sorry we didn't get it to you sooner. I hope you enjoyed the card. It's confusing when I open the mail and it turns out to be mail from myself. This is like a real, this was a real existential crisis for me. I I opened the mail and it turned out to be something we're supposed to send. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not something we're supposed to receive. Um, 
But you can send us actual things and not just things you want sent back to you to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You can uh, find your fellow futurelings online, make your own little, uh, what was it called? A rhizosphere? Rhizosphere. Um, on Facebook or uh, Discord or Reddit. I believe there are futurelings groups on all of the above. The best way to support the show is to go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject right now when your heart is full of woo and love for the natural world and uh, become a supporter of, uh, of Omnibus. It would not exist without our dedicated loyal listeners um, who are in many cases getting pretty well compensated oh, for yeah. their support. In this case, for example, today's show uh, about mother trees was suggested by, was suggested by Norm, a, uh, a washing bear level donor, I believe if I'm remembering the order, right? Thank you, Norm. I really enjoyed it. You know, I should have said from the very beginning that my mom and sister are huge mother tree proponents. They know the work and are... They do. They have read the book or her book. They have read her books. Um, and uh, I can recommend the film Fabulous Fungi, uh, which is... Or I'm sorry, Fantastic Fungi, which is one of the wonderful things about fungi is that they grow in stop motion. So rather than sitting and watching mushrooms grow really slowly in your time world, just switch over into fast motion time world and you can watch them grow and then shrink down and they can, they will take an apple and they'll turn it into tree food. It would be interesting if the, if the rhizosphere actually works just like uh, any other kind of neural net, but it's just much slower, mm-hmm. like a la, you know, ant style, <laughs> Fangorn <laughs> forest. So if you actually were to speed it up, that's when you could observe the, the phenomena that would look to us like consciousness or, uh, or organization. Yeah, exactly. We have only the ability to stop motion the, the fungi to a certain extent, but if we could speed that all the way up so that it went as fast as the neurons firing in our brains, maybe it would be exactly the same process. Because, not to get too woo, fractals can. I guess uh, this show does function as a symbiotic relationship. You are a birch tree, and mm-hmm. I'm a fun guy. No? No. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and fungus and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omni.